Welcome to the latest edition of the Mag Debrief podcast. I am joined as ever by Dan Worth. Hi, Dan. Hi. And Gronya Hallahan. Hi, Gronya. Hello. We're going to discuss the 8th of January issue today, so uh, let's get started. Okay, so the first feature we're going to look at is the cover feature, and Gronya's going to talk us through this one. Okay, so this week's cover is by Jess Powell, and it's all about reading ages. And this is something that I find fascinating, particularly because reading ages get bandied about all the time. It's something that even as a child, I was really hyper aware of because, of course, I was that geeky kid who did the test of the teacher and got the highest reading age in the class. Of course you were. Of course, of course. And I was really, really proud of it. And you start to think, does it actually mean anything? Is there any real science behind this? And lots of teachers will hear talk about schools being this reading age and that reading age, and that's too challenging. And, you know, what what does it all mean? So Jess Power has a little look at this in a little look, a, a very in-depth look, and pulls it all apart. And it's a it's a it's a really good read. So she describes it as data heaven or data hell when you first start looking at reading ages and says that the expectations of reading ability is really quite problematic. And she illustrates this with a really good example. So you could get 109-year-olds and give them 30 words, varying from something really simple like bed that they could all read and chasse, which only some of them could read. On average, they get 20 right. Most, that's 68 of that 100, get between 17 and 23. That means that 20 would give you the average reading age of nine, but it's actually typical for a nine-year-old to get between 17 and 23. So that's a much bigger range and it, actually, and it's, it illustrates the way that this, this is quite complicated and it's, there's a lot more to it than just the number of words that they can read. And just says that it's a sliding scale and we've got problems with labelling children. She talks to some different reading, reading age assessors that um, actually say, you probably shouldn't be using reading ages in isolation just on their own and that perhaps scaled scores are another way that you could measure them. Um, Nicola mansfield Nemi says that skills matter more. Actually knowing what a child needs to do to improve is probably more helpful than just labelling it with an arbitrary, arbitrary number. What, what good is that going to do? You actually need to know how you're going to move that child on. And um, then we've got the lovely David Bunker, who's an English teacher who, start, who comments and talks about how it's actually quite useful sometimes to use reading ages to match it to books for students. So if you know what reading age they are, well, then you can give them a book that's quite challenging. And Jess looks at this and, and pulls up the, the fact that the reading age of The Road is lower than Diary of a Wimpy Kid, but obviously... The road is all about a cannibalistic future of people uh, in a terrible society where it's all gone terribly wrong, not appropriate for younger readers. So it's, it's an interesting one. She talks to some people who have reading free zones, reading age free zones in their libraries. And it's a, it's a really interesting read. I hadn't realised reading ages were such a thing. I mean, I can't remember ever being given one as a, as a, as a, people i don't know about you dan i don't really know I, I maybe they did exist but if they did it was it was probably something i was unaware of and so i mean has this is this grown i mean i see it on twitter now quite a lot of people saying you know, there's been quite a few long threads where people have said you know how do you use your reading ages 
No, and, and so is this something that's grown as the data and accountability has grown? You know, we can see that this child's working at the age of eight when they're nine. What, what are you doing about it? Is, it, is, that where it's, is that where it's stemming from? Schools love data. And it's a really nice measure that you can use and you can show that you've progressed a child because look, when they came to us, they had this reading age. And now we've done this intervention and they've got this reading age. And it makes you feel like something that's actually beyond like that scientific, like the maths calculating of it. Like it makes you feel like you can control it when really you can take, uh, and Jess explores this in the piece. She talks about how you can take like chunks of text, but that doesn't give you the picture of what the reading age is for the whole book. And you know, there's, um, Oh, there's a really interesting thing. Did you know on word, you can look at what the reading age is on word. When I read that, I was like, I want to know, I want to go and do that for all the articles I edit now and to see what, what is the reading age of tears. But then that would go against the article, which says, well, even the, as you said, even the people that produce the reading age scores don't want you to use them. I mean, that, that's the weird thing about this feature is that, you know, Jesse Ricketts from the Lara lab at Royal Holloway basically says, these aren't a good idea. They're not very accurate. And you could be falsely labeling a child if you, if you do use reading ages and then Jess Powell, who wrote the piece, goes to the, the manufacturers or the, the providers of these reading age tests and they're going, no, nah, well, I, I don't think they should use it either. And then the question is, okay, well, why are you giving them? And they said, well, people ask us for them. And it's this, okay, it, where does it end? You know, are they asking for them because they exist or do they exist because they're being asked for? And, you know, I take the point, I guess, in the piece that it says scaled scores are, are more complex to understand and, you know, reading ages give you a rough idea but the example of the difference between someone six months behind in in reception and, and six months behind in year six is striking it is it, crazy how different that is so how useful is it i think there's a big push sorry dan there's a big push from parents as well to know reading ages and they put it in i know for my daughter's school they put it in their their workbook that comes home and then as soon as that happens there's a your whatsapp groups will just erupt with people comparing and saying what did your child get? What did your really? Yeah, happen yeah. at my kids' school. Oh no, they're they're really on it, and they want to know. And it's it's um and and it it seems to be something that people want to know because it feels like something they can understand. Yeah, that's what exactly what I was going to say. I can understand how it's happened and why people want it, both teachers but also parents, because it's a way of just even if it doesn't actually mean something, it sounds like it does, and and it and it obviously does mean something. But it just to say, oh, I've got to read. My child has a reading age of score of you know 782 oh and you know someone else has 714 therefore they're better at reading but I guess you do need something to kind of say otherwise you're just kind of saying yeah they're quite good but they can read I mean how do you define it it's difficult isn't it I think the only issue would be and this is sort of touched from the piece is is the children themselves if they find out about these scores and they start to compare them themselves and that could be quite damaging and particularly with older children you know almost in secondary and the piece says like at least saying you have a score of 800 versus you have the reading age of a 12 year old or something that's far less damaging and it's more sort of okay I can sort of take that as an arbitrary number and build it up mm. but I would I would think that idea of parents comparing okay that's one level but I would hope the children wouldn't start to become competitive amongst themselves because reading is isn't a linear thing is it we all go through fits and starts of like we all we even in adults we suddenly read lots of books in it because we suddenly get back into reading briefly and we're on the train more often for some reason we read all the time and then it's unfair the idea that you just are a good reader or a bad reader or you read all the time or you don't read all the time it's not quite true is it like we all kind of Differently. I think it's that's the sort of balance to get right, probably. I think when I'm reading some of the academic stuff, 
I feel like my reading age is very low. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good point, though, isn't it? Because you do read novels and books, and sometimes you read something and you think, oh, this is a very... You know, like I'm reading the, the new Richard Osmond book, which everyone got for Christmas, I think. Oh, yeah. And it's good, but the reading, the, 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 the vocabulary is very every day it's really really there's not a word that's going to come up that's going to make anyone reach the thesaurus and think what does that mean and then you can pick up another book and suddenly you'll be complete like every page is a struggle and that's as you know adults who work with words for a living and that's that's fine that's normal but you have to and that's something that all people need to sort of all ages we should learn that there's always reading improvement to have isn't there i think that's an interesting point though isn't it because you know you need i guess a blend of that in you know when we're picking a book Mm. for a child or, or they're picking their own book. Like some of the ones that have come home for my kids, you know, I'm struggling. There's one about um, who's the uh, first female pilot? I can't, I'm trying to remember now. Amelia Earhart. Amelia Earhart. Geez, I, I was struggling. And like, I've got my six-year-old next to me going, what does that mean? Like every third word. <laughs> and then the next one was something about, I think it was one of the magic key books. And I was like, oh, hang on. This is all right. I can, I can cope with this level. <laughs> but there were the same band, you know, one was just non-fiction and it obviously decided that it could use quite, you know, quite different words that they wouldn't normally come out. And it's good, but it's also a challenge. And mm. I guess managing motivation and confidence at that point is important because if you'd use those language in a book about Pokemon, he'd have been fine and he'd have been motivated <laughs> to, to learn. But uh, he wasn't that into someone flying planes from... Do you know, I've had exactly the same experience with Ivy Rose and when she reads her non-fiction books and we did one about... Um, paupers and princes in Tudor times and I keep because I'm you know keen mum I write down all the new words that she learns when she reads to me in her reading diary went out of space like it was just ridiculous like it was just and I was having to check the words to make sure that I was telling her the right thing and it's um yeah they were, but they were banned like you banded exactly the same so I think there's definitely um challenges in trying to band books for young children and for probably not always getting it right i finished this this conversation about this article feeling slightly inadequate as a parent so thank you for that much. <laughs> um but uh take a read it's it's, it's, a, it's an essential read for, for schools because as, as gronya said reading ages are used frequently in schools and this piece really does suggest that you shouldn't and or at least at least if you should you should be extremely cautious about how you use them okay so feature two Who's got their shoes off as we're doing this podcast? I've got slippers on. Yeah, I've got slippers on too, but it's cold, isn't it? I would usually be. I'm in socks and with a massive hole in the heel. So (laughs) throw throw them away, John. Well, that's what my wife said this morning. Well, she threw one set away, and then I got the next set, and then this set had a had a bigger (laughs) hole in the heel. (laughs) She just was exactly. Didn't didn't you get some new socks for Christmas? I did, and and it's a failure on my part. I admit. but why are we talking about socks? Why, why indeed? Well, because there's an excellent feature in this week's issue about um, why there are potentially benefits to letting your pupils go barefoot, or, or I guess in socks, in the classroom. Um, and that's it, a sort of slightly sort of strange and, and maybe even unhygienic idea at first to hear about the idea that you would let your pupils not have their shoes on in the classroom. But some research by this chap called Stephen Heppel, who works at Bournemouth University, um, sort of suggests that there are benefits. And it isn't entirely clear why there seems to be a sort of mix of reasons um i won't sort of give away too much on the feature because i think it's really worth reading through but i think on reading it i could have could understand that and i suspect there will be teachers who maybe 
could even say they probably do see a difference in pupils if for whatever reason they've taken their shoes off in a classroom. You know, sometimes you might, I guess you might do it like to sort of create a mood or an atmosphere or for a certain activity, it might be necessary. And I just like the idea that I think, and I think we were joking about this before, that we're all spending a lot less time in shoes, aren't we? We're all in yeah. home in our socks and slippers at most and putting on shoes. is also, We have one pair of shoes and that's what we need all the time, whereas, you know, posh shoes and smart shoes and conference shoes and sort of gone out the window. Um, and I just thought it was interesting that there are these little changes, aren't there, in, in how we feel about ourselves based on our clothing and what we wear. And this was a good example of maybe there are ways schools can just subtly change things as well. And, and it improves learning, it seems to suggest, which is the main outcome for everything. I think there's two things that struck me about it. One, that it's quite common in some countries already. Mm. And two, that there's UK schools that have already done it. I mean, when I got to that part of the feature and, you know, this teacher explained that in their school, they, they, you know, they had quite a, you know, a, a, an explorative head teacher who wants to try new things. And they tried it and they just found that it did have a good impact and that, that the kids felt more relaxed and the behavior improved. And one of the weird things about it was the reading you know kids were more eager to read because at home they curl up on a mm. you know on the floor on a bed or on a sofa with the shoes off and get comfy and have a read and it's one of those things isn't it where it's quite intuitive you're like oh yeah that that sort of makes sense but also do i want 30 kids with their shoes off i don't know <laughs> Gornia's looking at me like no <laughs> i don't Gornia used to teach drama that's when the kids used to take their shoes off they were naughty and smelly <laughs> naughty feet no, it just it didn't, it didn't really change their behaviour because so their shoes off. It didn't stop them being naughty and their feet stunk. But you know, what, what age are we talking there? Yeah. Secondary. Yeah, because I think the, the article seems to lean more towards primary, yeah. doesn't it? And I think that... that's what really struck me. I was reading it and I was thinking, wait till they're teenagers. <laughs> and also it's novelty. So I bet it would work with teenagers in a classroom where they wouldn't ordinarily take mm. their shoes off because they would feel like slightly disarmed, like a little bit on the back yeah. on their back barefoot and then <laughs> once they're used to it they'll just go back to being naughty again i think i just find it more relaxing to not have much i don't like having shoes on and then mm. if i was a naturally well i am a naturally sort of doodling fidgety person that's just what i'm like when i have my shoes off i'm a little bit calmer i have to say and that might be just that might be nothing to do with having my shoes off. It might be something you know, you'd have to dig in. Multiple, multifactorial, I think they call it. But um, but it does have an impact for me. And so I think some kids might feel very uncomfortable with their shoes off, especially if they have a more formal uh, background in their homes. But you know, I think some kids it will benefit. So maybe it's a a mix and match approach is best. I don't know. Do you I, know- think you, I think yeah. It's interesting on, that um, when, when we did have lockdown, teachers were talking about going into school and how they were really pleased because they were going to wear trainers in school and how this is so much more comfortable. And you think about kids that are in school all day wearing really uncomfortable school shoes. They're not allowed to wear like, more comfortable styles like trainers or boots. And perhaps if we were more flexible with shoe wear in schools, then we'd see a similar effect like in a positive impact on behaviour because... What the, they're wear, what they sit in all day long is actually quite constrained and uncomfortable, and they're not mm. doing like an office type job. They look like office workers, but they're not doing an office role because they walk around the school all day, and then they're out expected to run around at break time. I'm thinking about teenage girls running around the playground in their shoes. It's not 
probably doesn't what happens. But I spoke to a head yesterday of a girls' school, and she told me that even the year tens do skipping and running and things like that. So and they, you shouldn't like what sort of shoes they got on their feet to do that? Are they wearing trainers? It's a very good point, isn't it? And one of the points in the article is that a lot of the schools who do do this abroad have outdoor and indoor shoes. And so, you know, there is, it's not as if, you know, they're shedding the shoes and walking around bare feet. It's like some have slippers, some have the sort of a plimsoll inside the school. We're Um, talking to a lot of international teachers. It's quite clear that they have the the cultures and the environments, the weather to to do that. And almost it would almost be sort of perverse to not probably to have your thick, chunky shoes on all day. You know, who who the hell would do that in these, in these climates or whatever. So it's probably, it's probably a difference there, isn't it? Like British weather particularly at the moment, you know, or, you know, who'd want to take their shoes off and traipse around. But in some parts of the world, it must be lovely. Well, that's the thing. It says cleaning budgets, doesn't it? Can you imagine at the moment it rains every day and you, well, obviously kids aren't in school, but, you know, in a normal, more normal mm. year, the mud and the, and the wet in the corridors, <laughs> yeah. on, the, on the reading carpet. Oh God, it's awful. The first school I taught at, I remember going in for my interview and seeing outside the headmaster's office a huge box of slippers and just being like, what sort of school is this? Like, <laughs> what do they do here? And then after a few weeks, and I, I got the job and I started, I realised that it was for kids that came to school in their trainers. They got taken to the headmaster's office. They took the trainers off them and gave them slippers. And this was a, like an effective way of giving them shoes to still wear, but punishing them because they look silly because they're wearing slippers. But then that style of slippers came into fashion. Do you remember when loafers were really fashionable? I, and I wanted some loafers, yeah. And then when the kids were wearing it, they, just, they didn't care. They're like, I think they look quite nice. <laughs> These like pink fluffy ones. Well, I guess we have, we have sort of segued into, I mean, it comes down to uniform, I guess. And yeah. there's a, quite a few schools now in the UK that don't have uniform. But I wonder how even those schools would feel about a no-shoe policy. I mean, one of, you know, one of the most prominent, I guess, is XP in Doncaster. And, you know, maybe I'll tweet Gwyn and ask him if what happens if a kid just sheds the shoes and starts walking around. But like, it's an extension yeah. of it, isn't it? Well, it is. But the, art, the article is sort of, I think it's more saying that they're doing this at certain times. It's certain, certain periods of, it's not sort of the shoe, it's the whole school is shoeless. It's, it's, you come into certain lessons and it's like, now we take our shoes off. And I think there's a, there's obviously a difference there. I think one is much more extreme than the other. And they keep their socks on, don't they? Like, we're not talking about bare. Uh, he, he says that would be a compromise. He said, you know, ideally it's, it's skin on lino. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, Classic phrase. <laughs> really don't like feet. But, uh, but he says, you know, you don't have to go the whole hog. You could keep your socks on or wear slippers. I think that's what he does mm. say. But he has some great quotes in it. It's worth reading the piece just for just for Heppel's quotes because he looks like a, he he seems like a man I'd like to go for a beer with. You know, he he's yeah. just he just seems like a guy that would be entertaining and and challenge your thinking. And I think education needs people who challenge your thinking, whether you agree with them or not. Is is you know those people can either open new worlds to you or solidify your own view, but either mm. is quite helpful. Well, don't you think you'd, you'd read this and you'd think you'd try it? And if you tried it once and you saw a benefit, mm. it'd be the novelty of it. And for the children, you know, obviously when they were back in school, that's sort of the excitement or, or the sense of, oh, we're doing something different. I'll be a great way to get them into a new topic. Or, because I can just imagine like if you're six or seven and suddenly it's like, I'm taking my shoes off in school. I'm sitting, but it, it, the whole sort of, oh, it, it would just feel kind of different and exciting. And that mm. might be terrible because it might make them completely over the top, but it might make them really in focus on, well, why? What are we doing? What are we learning about? I really want yeah. to know because something's different. But the, the thing I really thought about as a final point for me anyway is that 
the logistics though, that seems like a big problem. How do you make sure they put their shoes in the right place together and they can get them all quickly afterwards and they're not running around going, I can't uh, shoes and they all, have, all identical uh, shoes and you've got to work out who's the who's. That seems a disaster. I have four kids and they have wellies and trainers and it's hard enough finding somewhere to store that. Yeah. And then find the right shoes for the right ones and then get them on them. Yeah. I mean, two of the four are primary age, but geez, like 30 kids. I mean, you'll learn this, Dan, when you have your own children, but uh, if you do, but um, when, when kids come home from PE at, at primary school, it, it's a mess. Like they come home with their tie, just the weirdest <laughs> weirdest ways of tying a tie and the jumper's usually missing if it's summer and you know the shirt's got buttoned because basically there's 30 kids to try and dress and i can't imagine having to then go every morning and night let's all find your shoes kids and most of them have got the same shoes because they've all gone to the same shop to get the same shoes yeah i picked my friend up from my friend's daughter up from school recently and she came out without her skirt on (laughs) <laughs> no way <laughs> and they'd gone swimming in the morning it's like how have you gone through the whole day and not noticed your skirt's not on like go back in go back in i'm not, I'm not taking you home like that <laughs> I, I was at fault once I, t- I dropped my twins off at nursery and, and my wife had laid the clothes out and I, I got them to school and i ushered them through and i got there in the evening picked them up and and the lovely um sarah came out who's their key worker and said John, um, I didn't know whether they were supposed to have a skirt on. And I was like, what, what do you mean? She said, well, they've just got tights on. And I was like, oh, I thought they were leggings. <laughs> oh, I'm really sorry. She said, yeah, they didn't seem to mind, so I didn't really know what to do. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. I sent, I sent my twins to, to, to nursery all day with just tights on. So parent fail again. There's going to be a theme across this. I think I, I, I'm a parent failure on the first feature. I'm a parent failure on the second feature. So we'll go to feature three now, I think, and see if, um, see if I can still fail. Probably, yes, I, I probably will. The so feature three uh, is about blushing. Now, I am a horrible, horrible blusher. I, and I can't really put a finger on why it happened and when. I, I, I can't remember not blushing. Um, and I blush at different times. So... You know, some people will blush when anyone's looking at them. I can actually stand in front of a, a wedding and deliver a best man speech, okay. But if if three people talk to me randomly in a shop, I just glow like a like a traffic light. And and mm. I think it's maybe something to do with the un, unexpected nature of it, which takes us to this feature because, you know, it's sort of seen as a silly thing. You know, I remember at school, all the kids going, oh, he's going red, he's going red. And he's sort of like, oh, I'm going red, ah, cheers. And uh, so we asked Chris to look into this and say, okay, you know, how damaging is this? And it was incredibly serious for some people, the blushing. And school is the worst place to be as a blushing person. And so what Chris does is he takes us through the research, which is quite in its infancy, actually, for, um, for children, which surprised me as well. And you've got these guys just saying, do you know what? Like, for some kids, this is completely socially debilitating. And even at the even at the sort of mild end, the sort of my end, well, maybe you'd call me severe, I don't know. Um, even, or, even the sort of the semi-severe stage, you'll still avoid situations because of a fear of blushing. And I think that really struck me because I did. I hated presentations. I hated being the center of attention. And, you know, it, 
it really made me think about, okay, how can we support kids who are like that? Because actually you can't remove them from some of those situations because they need to be in them. It's part of life that you're going to have to be in front of someone. You're going to have to talk to someone unexpectedly. It's not like you can take the, the, the stimulus of the blushing away. Mm. Um, so yeah, Chris goes into this and he gives some really interesting um, advice, I would say, to, to schools in that. Um, do either of you two suffer? I don't know. I don't think I, I don't think I ever have, and I don't know why. I still get. I have always, as particularly as a youngster, got nervous in the same situations you describe. You know, talking in public and, and whatnot was not something I sort of readily wanted to do. I mean, I could do it, like in class presentations, but I wouldn't, you know, be first first put my hand up to do it. But I don't think I've ever suffered from blushing. But I, I, I hundred percent can imagine it must be. Yeah, particularly for some people, I mean, it sounds like you were able to sort of laugh it off or go along with the joke, and that, that's you know that that's a quite a skill in some ways to be able to do that because some people won't. You know, they'll really struggle and they'll it would like double down on them. Like we're all a bit nervous about speaking, particularly as children. And then it comes, you know, you have this facial reaction you can't control that everyone then laughs out, points out, well, that must be awful. Like, like, you know, in the same way that acne can be a problem for people of their teenagers. Well, why wouldn't it be? Because it's a visual thing. You, know, you can't yeah. hide it. I can understand it must be very dis- distressing potentially. And, and I think I would imagine most teachers are probably aware of that and don't seek to exacerbate the situation. But I still think there may be sometimes where they sort of, overlook that as like no that, that's something i need to sort of be mindful of it's, it's a problem for that people and i need to sort of not make it worse mm. how about you Gronia? yeah i blush i get really embarrassed and i blush especially if um if i don't think i, I don't get i don't think i blush in front of like big crowds i'm not nervous about talking in, in, i've never ever felt nervous about talking in front of big groups of people and when i was little i used to do a lot of like drama stuff and theater stuff i don't remember oh, i'm everywhere. shocked <laughs> <laughs> and um that never made me blush i don't remember blushing on stage but i blushed like in groups and i remember blushing in, in that whole you're going red you're yeah. going red yeah. and that i'm like no i'm not and i clearly am but yeah it's i hate it when you go go on going red and everyone goes no you're not you're not red and you think no, i can i can feel the yeah, heat yeah, coming yeah. and they're going and they're going, you're not red at all yet. And oh, oh no, now you are. Now, now, now you're red. And, and do you know what? In the piece when it says why it happens, I mean, no one really knows, but a couple of theories. One is that you blush for the same reason as you do when you're, you, you're, you're, the blood rushes to your face to sort of warm you, which was a bizarre thing because I don't think I've ever been that cold when I've been blushing. But the, the other point that I found more interesting was it's a communication. It's a sort of, I'm, I'm struggling sign a i'm uncomfortable in this situation and that it can actually endear people to you that it's a sign or you know it's it, it, it's a tool for well almost manipulating people into feeling sorry for you which made me feel really bad um but yeah i think the, the unknown nature of it and how bad it could be at the severe end was quite shocking to me that there will be kids in your school who, whose fear of blushing could lead to a social anxiety disorder and that made me think, wow, I mean, how many Senkos is this on the radar of, actually? And, you know, do they not see it until it becomes a social anxiety disorder, not knowing that actually it came from this fear of blushing? And that if we could go up the, 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 the timeline a bit and talk to people who really do look uncomfortable in some of those situations and not, as I said, not taking it away from them, but find you know it talks about cognitive behavior therapy is a really good way of of combating this um 
yeah, it just seemed like an a, an unusual space in the school. Mm. I think. No, definitely, and I, I think you know you, you've touched on it there. Is that it, it? It's something that can could have a lifelong impact, couldn't it? If your awareness of public speaking or talking to a group, or like say being accosted randomly in the street by someone or a supermarket, reminds you of that feeling and that that feeling that you know we all remember. School is that's why school is so sort of such a fascinating thing, isn't it? Because it it really does stay with you forever, whatever you go on to achieve. And in fact, this is very apt. We'll talk about this shortly. You you always remember school. You always remember the teachers, your pupils, and you remember those feelings. And if you're suddenly in your job asked to do, you're really high flying, you're great at your job, fantastic. And someone says, oh, could you give a talk at a conference? You'd know, be great for our company to be there. And you're like, oh God, no, public speaking, I blush. But you're brilliant at what you do. Yeah, you know, it, it matters, doesn't it? And I think it's, I think, maybe I'm going for a tangent here, but I think even the word blushing, it sounds a little bit, it's almost quite, um, it's almost too, it's soft, isn't it? It's a nice word in, in some, yeah. you know, we talk about, if other, it has other meanings. And so it doesn't, it sounds a bit sort of, every day oh they, they benign yeah yeah but but if you had a different word for it a word that had more sort of oh, oh okay well we're aware of that now it would have more impact maybe as a, as a condition yeah and I, i'm thinking about the time so in, in in english lessons you always have a speaking and listening assessment that's so in most terms you would do a small piece of speaking and listening with your students and then for gcse they do um one that's assessed but it doesn't go towards their mark but you know it's still it's really important and the most common objection a kid will give you for not wanting to do their speech will be, it's like, oh, no, because I go red. Like, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, no one cares. It's fine. Don't worry about it. They do care and they do say it. So when someone's speaking and you can see them going red, you can hear the, you can hear the whisper like, mm. oh, red. It's like, shush. <laughs> yeah. Next to them, like, grit. And like, tell them off afterwards. But yeah, it, the kids notice it. And they, they watch for someone to go red as well. Kids are cruel. They are cruel. <laughs> do teachers, do you, you know, do teachers go red in class in front of kids? Oh yeah, of course they do. And what? How does that? How oh, does that go down? You stand up and give um, to, like when you've got to give notices in the staff room. So many teachers won't do it. I've I've worked with people who'd be like, "Gornia, say it for me. Can you read it out for me? Because I don't want to read it." <laughs> okay, but people will stand up and then just go red the entire time they're speaking, and then you know i try and style it out now so when i go red i just ignore that it's happened and eventually goes away that's my that's my coping mechanism and i can see that everyone's clocked it and i'm just like yeah we'll ignore this we'll <laughs> pretend it hasn't happened but as you say dan i've never seen you go red in nearly well 15 years of of, of friendship dan i don't think i've ever seen you red yeah well there you go apart from that time i fell in a giant bottle of tomato puree but um <laughs> <laughs> i think that's a joke it's not it's not um okay so yeah check that feature out because i think it's, it's a very interesting area and i would say it's an area of send that we should look at and and take seriously so before we go dan we there is a new podcast that we are we have produced tell us all about it Yes, another podcast, um, and it's it's a brilliant one, and I'm really excited about it. And it's called My Best Teacher, and it's me talking to celebrities, high-profile people, whatever you might want to call them, about their best teachers. And it's something that Tez has done in the past in the magazine, but it actually is it's the perfect podcast format because uh, the first one is out on Friday, so that's also on the 8th, and it's with Tim Vine, the comedian, and he is absolutely brilliant interview, so much fun to do. I've been waiting to get it live or what it feels like. Well, it's been months, really. Yeah. Um, but it shows that everyone else I've interviewed subsequently, we've, so I spoke to Lem Cisse. Again, just such an interesting man. Speaks so sort of deeply and passionately about school. Um, I spoke 
to Kate Clanchy and so far Martin Roberts. And I've got some others in the pipeline. So they'll be coming out in, in due course. Martin Roberts. What Martin a Roberts. Hero. <laughs> Again, such a nice man and, and such an interesting sort of thing. Some of the things he's done with schools, actually, with his NSPCC work and his, and his book. But all of them, all these people, the moment you talk about school, they all have this, they, there's a sort of a hush, not, I would say reverence, but a sort of, ah, oh, school, yes. And it might be, some of the stories are positive. We talk about, did they get in detentions? Did they go on good school trips? We talk about their best teacher, of course. Um, and it just shows, doesn't it, that we all know it and it's, it's a cliche and all that, but it's just cliche because it's true that, that your teachers stay with you, um, your school days stay with you, and whatever you go on in life to achieve, you suddenly revert back to that, that remembrance of school. Uh, and like Tim Vine, you know, he talks about the teachers he remembers, and he talks about one teacher called Mr. Squibbs, and he says, oh, he was incredibly strict, but everybody loved him. And, you know, this teacher, this sort of, and he remembers seeing him again in the future and, it's, and other teachers, and it's always, oh, Mr. Smith, you know, Mr. Squibbs, Mr. whatever, that you can't call them by their first name, even though you've gone on to become successful and been on television, it's still like, oh, hello, sir, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's a great listen. And I think, I think teachers particularly will get a kick out of it, but I think so will anyone else really, because it just shows that, you know, it's a really interesting, school is such a fascinating part of our lives. So I thought we could have a little wrap up here on that about the best teachers we remember from school. Maybe not, it doesn't have to be the best teacher, but our, our great teacher you remember. Goronia, why don't you kick us off? So... One teacher that I had that was amazing was Mrs. Allerton, and she was my teacher in year three. Year three is the first year of juniors, isn't it? Year three in primary school. And I remember sitting with my friend Sarah, who's still my friend now, in her bedroom at the end of the summer. I'm like, I've got Mrs. Allerton next year. It's like, I think she's really scary. (laughs) I heard she's really strict. I was like, oh, I don't know. Like, we've not had a strict teacher before. Like, oh, what's it going to be like? And um, yeah, she was really strict. And she was a little bit scary. She was brilliant. And she just, everything was interesting to her. She found everything interesting. And I remember her talking about stuff that, like the way she taught geography, I found really exciting. We plotted, I remember doing graphs, doing what time the sun rose and set each day. And we did this little graph. I bloody loved that graph. I like probably today. <laughs> It's still framed in your house, isn't it? <laughs> like, I don't, she made me really interested in subjects that I didn't previously have any interest in and I haven't been really interested in that much. But she, the way she taught the Impressionists, like, I loved that. I remember her lesson so clearly. And then as a teenager, I did art for GCSE and A-level. And I remembered the things that she taught me back in year three. And I used it in my coursework years and years later. And she is such um such a great storyteller I remember she did all the Greek myths everybody in the school went into the school hall and she just had us for like an hour and went through the myth and she didn't show a video she didn't do anything fancy she just stood there and told the stories and was so entertaining and Mm. so captivating and she still lives in the same village where I grew up and my mum and dad still live now and my mum does oh I saw Mrs Allerton when I was at walk it's like does she remember me (laughs) (laughs) like she did she asked after she was just the best person you could ever please i thought she was just wonderful that's great yeah well again your 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 sort of enthusiasm there was was sort of you know i'm clearly not affected that was that was a real sort of that's just real isn't it you can't fake that although she did teach drama (laughs) (laughs) that's true but i think that was i think we'll give it sincere (laughs) um john how about you well, I think there's a few that really influenced me over my time, but the one that had the most influence on me was probably Mr. Bailey, who I've talked about before, who taught me history for most of the time through secondary. And actually, 
in sick form as well. And on my first day of college, I enrolled at my sick form and the local college. And I, the sick form was the day before. So I said, if I go in and I don't get Mr. Bailey for history, I'm going to go to the other college. And that was, that's how much influence he had. And I turned up on the first day and I didn't have him for history. So I just went up to the head of sick form and said, I'm going to go to Haven College because you haven't given me the teacher I want. And she said, right, I'll give you the teacher you want. And so that was, that was quite a simple decision for them at that point. And, but he was just great. And the weird thing about it is I loved history at school. And then I went to do it. I actually went to the university he went to. That's how sad I was. Um, he went to the LSE. And so I applied to LSE to do history like Mr. Bailey. And I got there and I hated every second of being there. And I hated history when I got there because actually it wasn't really history that I liked. It was the way Mr. Bailey taught it with mm. stories. And actually what I wanted to do was English because he made, he made history come alive in the same way literature does. And, and it was just such a weird awakening to go, why am I here doing this, counting mm. the number of beds in a 15th century house? Um, you know, because actually I, I like the stories and Mr. Bailey brought that alive. Um, but he did call me a Nazi. So <laughs> he, uh, in one lesson, he, he said, basically guys, you know, like, uh, the Nazis were, what they wanted was these, these blonde, blue eyed, uh, slightly, you know, wide shouldered people, you know, John, stand up for me, John, this is your basic, your basic SS man. <laughs> and then I went, ah. And he went, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and it, was, it was brilliant, but I didn't mind. But yeah, that, that did make play, the playground quite interesting for a few weeks of uh, people calling me an SS man, not <laughs> really, really understanding what that meant. But yeah, no, Mr. Bailey, definitely. But I think there's, there's teachers that you sometimes get at the right time throughout your school career, and, and they can be very different to what you'd expect to need. But I think sometimes, I don't know if it's luck or just, you know, some people less lucky, but I think sometimes at different stages of your, like Mrs. Allerton for you, but Mr. Bailey at that stage, but before that I had other teachers that suddenly went, oh, okay. And it, it, it came at the right time for me. Mm. That's a really, well, we, I talk with Leb Cisse about that and we talk about that luck of the teacher you get. And like, there's no, well, it sounds like in some ways you actually did force the situation, but <laughs> for most pupils, you know, it's, it's, you just randomly are given a, a pupil teacher relationship and, and it might be, you know, hopefully it's good. It might be terrible, but it might be incredible. And, and like Len talks about that and how that's that, that randomness of who you get put with. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also had a very good history teacher called Dr. Flood who really brought history to life. Exactly as you said, he made it the drama of it. And, and that, was, that was why I got so hooked in history. But I think for me, the teacher that, there were two English teachers and there was Miss Neil and Mr. McDonald. And I've mentioned them both in the past and they were both excellent. And I probably already had an affinity with English, I guess. But they both, yeah, they just had that way. Of they, they taught the subject, but they taught you and they cared about you and they were interested in you. And they, they sort of, if you asked a question that wasn't quite relevant, but sort of was, t- you know, tangential, they would answer it and talk about it and discuss it. And I, like I said, I think I remember Mr. McDonald talking to us about the day after 9-11 and spending half of his lesson talking about that and reading us a poem from the Iraq war and sort of talking about the seeds of 9-11 clearly come from somewhere. And it wasn't this random out of nowhere event. And I just, probably not even at the time, but it was really treating us like adults and like, you, you need to know about this world event. We can't pretend it didn't happen. Embarrassing things like that. We, took, we did the bell with Iris Murdoch, quite a, you know, a deep novel. And he, he really you know, made us read it and understand it and didn't let us off the hook or anything like that. And just, just a really good teacher and just someone I always would, if, you, if I think about school, I think, oh, he, his lessons were great. I enjoyed them. I looked forward to them. You know, I went and sat down, you know, kind of keen, you know, wouldn't show that, but was like, oh yeah, English, Mr. McDonald, great. And same with Miss Neil, you know, she was great and it was fun. And 
she was she was cool and she used to be in a band or you know, she was a singer or she was cool stuff like that so she was just interesting sounds like Dan might have had a thing for Miss Neil no it wasn't quite like that <laughs> but she was just she was just good you know just good lessons just fun and, and engaging and interesting and, and most of my teachers at school were very good too but they were the lessons that I just enjoyed particularly um, so yeah the podcast you know shows doesn't it we've all got these memories and we all, all like, so, so it'll be a really good listen I think so I urge people to download it you can just find it by searching my best teacher on Apple Podcasts or Spotify I think if you're on Google and Amazon so any, any search of my best teacher and Tez should return it quite easily. And obviously we'll be putting it all over social media and stuff as well. So should be good. Oh, we'll, 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 in, we'll wait for your feedback on that um, audience out there. And hopefully you'll still listen to us and Dan's podcast. And, Definitely. and you'll, you'll we'll build up a, a repertoire of Tez podcasts for you. Um, next week, we've got a very interesting feature from Jared Cooney Horvath, who's one of our best science writers I, I think he's probably the best science communicator i've come across and he talks about the difference between the brain and the mind and it's it really is the tour de force of of science writing so please do uh, tune in for that and we'll try and do it justice on the podcast next week but uh for now that's that that's all we've got time for and um enjoy your week If you enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine Debrief Podcast and want to read more of Tez Magazine online and have it delivered to your door, subscribe now at tez.com forward slash store.